0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37? First book in your Bible, and then the 37th chapter. We want everybody to be able to look as we consider a passage in that chapter. So these brothers have some Bibles as they make their way back, get their attention. If you need a Bible, they'll get one to you. And it's marked at that passage in Genesis 37. Because we're gathered here for worship of Christ... It's safe to say that the vast majority of us consider ourselves Christians. After all, those who don't believe cannot truly worship and wouldn't want to anyway. So the mere fact that we're here and we're worshiping Christ says that we profess to be followers of Jesus. In order to become a member of our church, you have to give a credible testimony that you're indeed a believer of and follower, a believer in and follower of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that every person who professes also possesses. The truth is, it's possible to say that we are Christian, even be a member of the church, and not actually have a relationship with the Lord. But most of us are Christians. And as such, we should be experts in something called the Christian life. That expertise could start with defining what the Christian life is. And so let me ask you, Christian friend, what is the Christian life? Now I understand that I'm asking that to you unprepared. But my guess is most would have a hard time succinctly defining what we mean when we speak of the Christian life. And I say that in part because as I prepared for this message, I had to think it through myself. I didn't just have something roll off my keyboard as an answer for that. And so I went through what most of us do when we're not sure how to define something. We repeat what it is we're supposed to define. Well, you know, the Christian life is um, the life of a Christian. The Christian life is sort of how a Christian lives. And after a while, I came up with a definition. The Christian life is the time God is taking to make me like Jesus. The Christian life is the time that God is taking to make me, to make us, like Jesus. And I say that because the Bible says in a famous passage in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that God has predestined Christians to, quote, be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Now, there are a number of implications to that definition of the Christian life, that it's the time God is taking to make me like Jesus. One of those implications is that that length varies. Each of us are Christians, have been, and will be Christians for differing lengths of time. So it's the time God is taking, whatever that time is. And it's also a process. God is taking some amount of time to work the process. And also it has an objective, to become like Christ. And another implication of that is this. It requires change change in the Christian life is not optional it's absolutely mandatory if the Christian life is about us becoming like Jesus and God taking the time to effect that then change in the Christian life is absolutely mandatory and so friends if we're not changing then we're not living the Christian life And if we're not living the Christian life, then we need to ask what type of life are we living? So it should raise the question for us regularly, daily. What needs to change? The assumption is that we want to be like Jesus, and therefore we're eager to change, but we need to know what needs to change. And so where do I go? Where do we go to find that out? Well, the Bible gives us a number of avenues in order for us to see what needs to change. The first is the word of God itself. And so famously in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So where do we go to find out what needs to change? Change needs to be a constant in the Christian life. If we're going to become like Jesus, one place, the first place, is the Word of God. But also to other Christians, people with whom I have a relationship, who have my best interest at heart. And my best interest is for me to be like Jesus. And so Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13 says this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If we want to change, we should look to the word and look to other Christians who can speak into our lives. But here's a third area at which we should look if we truly want to change and be like Jesus. We should look at our circumstances. Because God often places us in situations to reveal things about us that need to change. So rather than chafing at the circumstance, we should ask the Lord in all of our situations, what do you have for me to learn in this? Last week, we saw that Abraham, needed to change. He was an idol worshiper, and we saw he was also a liar. God put him in situations that revealed the flaws in his character, and all for the purpose of maturing Abraham. And as we saw last week, that's indeed what happened. By the end of his life, Abraham had learned to fully trust God rather than take matters into his own hands. Now, in today's portrait of grace in the life of Joseph. We're going to see the time that God took with Joseph to make him like Christ. Like Abraham, and like me, and like you, Joseph needed to change. And he did with Abraham, and he does with me and you, graciously work in our lives. And we're going to see he graciously worked in Joseph's circumstances to show him his sin so that he could turn from it. So let's ask God to help us as we look at the life of Joseph and God's work in him to make him like Jesus. Father, we thank you for this sacred hour. We thank you that you, in your providence, have given us the health and by your spirit, given us the desire, given us the freedom to gather here. We thank you that we have in front of us the very word of God. O oh Lord, help us to hear and help us not to go away unchanged but help us to be changed by it for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now we're going to look at a few issues in the life of Joseph. That story contained in 14 chapters from Genesis 37 to Genesis chapter 50. Those points are listed in an outline that we have inserted for you in your program. If you don't already have that, I would encourage you to take that out. I would also tell you we probably will not cover all of that today. And we'll probably continue with the third point next, next week. Now, I say that at the outset to set the minds of you at, at ease who were here last week. We covered the entire life of Abraham in a longer period of time than we normally take. And this past week, I was visited a couple of times by people named Bubba at my door, <laughs> saying they were sent by the nursery and toddler workers to threaten me about ever doing that again. And so... I'll be careful about that. Now I've made some sweeping statements about the need for change in all of us. I said that Abraham needed it. And Joseph needed it. And you need it. and I need it. Everyone needs it. But how do I know that? How do I know that everyone needs to change? And that's the first point in your outline. I know that because of this. Everyone has baggage. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph. Everyone has baggage. As we go through life, we pick things up, some good, some bad, in our attitudes, in our words, and in our actions. I call it collectively baggage. We acquire a view of ourselves and of others and of God along the way, and we carry those perspectives with us into all our situations, and then it comes out in the way we talk and in the way we we act. And that baggage comes primarily from two sources. I have those in your outline. The first is this. It comes from our nurture, our nurture, or our environment. Our baggage comes first from our our nurture. Many of you are familiar with the debate regarding what most influences us. Is it heredity or is it environment? And here we're talking about our environment what we observe and what we learn in our upbringing and from our surroundings, at home, in our neighborhoods, and at school. What we see modeled in our homes, other than the radical work of God's grace in our hearts, it's the most powerful influence in all our lives, and Joseph was no exception. He was heavily influenced by the views that he picked up from his father, Jacob. Now, let me just take a few moments to remind you of who Jacob is. Many of you know the story of Jacob, the grandson of the man we saw last week, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 32, the Bible tells us that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons who are roughly the fathers of what the Bible calls the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I say roughly because two of those 12 sons were not apportioned a part of the, the promised land in which their tribe would live and, and flourish. One of those sons was Levi. His descendants would be the priests. And then the other was, was Joseph, who we'll talk about today. But Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were given portions of the land. So they were parceled out 12 ways, but not to the 12, the 12 sons. There'll be a test on that in, in just a bit. But of these 12 sons, here's what the Bible says about Jacob's attitude toward them in Genesis 37 and verse 3. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. This is part of Jacob's, or excuse me, Joseph's nurture, his environment now. This is part of his brother's environment. They're growing up in a home where it is clear to everyone in that home that Jacob loves one of the sons more than all of the others. And in this, Jacob is teaching Joseph to think of himself very highly. And this favoritism toward Joseph not only had effect on this favored son, but it incited his other sons to resent Joseph. So verse 4 says this. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any Of them. They hated him. Jacob influenced his sons in another way as well. We'll see later that those sons were deceitful. Jacob himself saw deceit in his own family when he was growing up, as as part of his nurture. And his very name, Jacob, means deceiver. And so these boys came by their lying honestly, if you will. Now Joseph is ultimately responsible for what he did with the poor example of Jacob's favoritism. And those other sons are ultimately responsible for their response to what they saw and what they heard from their father. But the Bible teaches that we're responsible for the influence that we have on others. Did you know that? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for example, in your New Testament, The Bible says that we are not to do anything that might cause another to stumble, lead another into sin. I need to concern myself with what I do and its influence on others. And likewise, we're specifically told in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children. Do you all remember? Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, if they grow up angry, they'll be responsible for that. But God will hold us responsible for what we modeled in front of them, and whether or not it constituted a provocation to that anger. The story of Joseph, like everyone else's story, is the story of a man who needed to change. And what he needed to change was influenced heavily by his upbringing. An upbringing that was dominated by the favoritism of this father and the resulting animosity of his brothers. And so how do you know what you need to change? One way you need to change is to look at the baggage that everyone has. And what baggage do you have? What baggage have you brought through life, starting with your upbringing, your environment, your nurture? Chapter 37 of Genesis gives five indicators of the conflict then that developed between Joseph and his his actually stepbrothers, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 2 says this. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. So first of all, they are, I say, stepbrothers. You see, they have the same father, Jacob, but they have different mothers. That's why the verse mentions the mothers that these are the sons of, and then gives the mother's names. It's to highlight a potential area of discord among Jacob's sons. Jacob's handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah, bore Jacob four children. And young 17-year-old Joseph, son of Jacob's wife Rachel, is helping them, these four sons, with their work, but there's this wedge between them. And part of that wedge is, we have the same father, we've we've got different mothers. And I, Joseph, by the way, am the son of the favored mother in this family. The second area of of indication of conflict in this family is this, that Joseph disparages his brothers to their father. Again, verse 2 at the end says this, Joseph brought their father a bad report about them. Now, when it says he brought a bad report to Jacob about about his stepbrothers, That same phrase, bad report, is used elsewhere in the Bible for a false report. In fact, in Numbers chapter 13, here's what the Bible says. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Do you see the exaggeration going on here? And it's a... Bad report, a false report. Same words used to describe what Joseph told his father about his his stepbrothers. Now the Hebrew in this passage in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 37 is written in such a way that it may be that Joseph is reporting bad things that the stepbrothers are saying about their father. So it could be that he's bringing false reports about them or he's telling his father the bad things that they are saying about Jacob. But in that case, he's still a bit of a tattletale, right? And in fact, Proverbs 17 says this, He who covers over an offense promotes love. Whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. And So whatever the content of and the motivation for these reports that Joseph is bringing to Jacob, it cast aspersions on the brothers, and it further alienated them from Joseph. But it gets better. There's more. Verse 3 gives a third reason for the animosity between Joseph and his brothers. And now it expands beyond just the four sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. An ornate robe for him. Some translations say, A coat of what? A coat of many colors. Now, it's probably not a coat of many colors. It's it's probably not focused on many colors. But rather, it's a special style of a a coat or robe worn by royalty. And so here Jacob shows his favoritism to Joseph by giving him a coat that is similar to a coat that is worn by, by royalty. In fact, the same phrase that is used of this this special coat, coat, this ornate robe in verse 3, is used of a princess elsewhere in Scripture. The Bible says, Princess Tamar was wearing a richly ornamented robe. Same phrase. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And So, not only did Jacob give this coat of royalty... But apparently Joseph was very happy to parade it in front of his his brothers. He was wearing it later in this chapter in verse 23 when he went out on a mission to search for his brothers. So there are three areas of conflict between Joseph and and his brothers. But there's a fourth indicator found in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and could not speak a kind word to him. Now it says they saw that their father loved him. It's literally written this way. They saw that him their father loved. It's translated to smooth it out. They saw that their father loved him. But it's actually they saw that him their father loved. The emphasis is upon, of all people, our father loves that guy, that scoundrel. And it says they hated him and could not even speak a kind word to him. And then chapter 37 gives us a fifth and final reason for their conflict. And that's found in the dreams that Joseph has and that he interprets in verses 5 through 11. In the first dream, sheaves or stalks represent Joseph and his brothers. And the sheaf that represents Joseph rises above the others, and the others bow down to him. And he tells his brothers about this dream. I will rise up, and you will bow down before me. And their reaction is incredulous, and they ask in verse 8, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They say it twice. They say, in effect, the same thing twice because in Hebrew, the same thing is repeated in other words in order to emphasis. It's kind of like, now we've heard it all. You have got to be kidding. And then verse 9 says that he had a second dream with the same meaning, but instead of sheaves, it involved the sun, moon, and 11 stars that were bowing down to Joseph. The sun represents their father, Jacob, the moon, his mother, and the 11 stars, his brother brothers. The Bible tells us in verse 10 that Jacob rebuked him. When it says he rebuked him it's a word that's used elsewhere in the Bible for correction of one who is proud or is foolish. Now I want you to notice something in verse 10. It says when he told the second dream to his fathers as well as his brothers. Now when you read that that sounds like he told it to both one time. Once to his brothers and then to his father. But it actually says literally, he related it to his father and to his brothers. So in fact, he told this second dream to his brothers twice. <laughs> once in verse 9 and again in verse 10. And so one commentator says it indicates that, quote, Joseph is inclined to be haughty or pompous when relating his dream. It appears that Joseph is rubbing it in. So Joseph grew up in what we would call a dysfunctional family. Jacob's parenting is a textbook for what not to do in raising children. And it can serve as a preemptive warning to those of us who are parents. And it can be instructive even to those of us who are not or whose children are no longer in the house because it can serve as a means to evaluate whether these things were present in our own upbringing Or if they are perhaps influencing us now as we bring up our own children. We should be warned against favoritism with our children. Why was it that Jacob favored Joseph? Verse 3 gives a clue when it says Joseph was the son of his old age. And so why would a young son late in life bring more joy? Just think about that. Why would that be? You're at a stage in life where you're thinking about the end. And you're thinking about yourself. And who and what can bring you joy. You've gone through the battles with the others. And hope springs eternal for a different experience this time. And all of us have a tendency to take a what have you done for me lately approach. Now, the answer is not to, as we often say then, treat our children all the same. Because, in fact, children are all different. Rather, to modify a principle that I heard from an NFL coach about how he approaches his team, he said, I treat them differently under the same rules. And so we derive principles from Scripture and we apply them differently to the different needs of our children. And so, for example, one important principle from Scripture is that our children need an accurate image of themselves. Not a high image, not a low image, an accurate image. Some will naturally tend to one extreme or the other. And so we bring them to balance by accentuating their strengths but also helping them see and work on their weaknesses. And so we're treating them differently but under the same rules, under the same, same principles. But that presupposes I have a standard of what's good and bad, what's strong and weak, so that I can help evaluate my child and then bring him or her along. And it is not, dear friends, found in comparing and contrasting the way my kids measure up to their peers. Too many parents are living their lives so that their kids get along and are thought of highly by others. It's not a bad thing to want, but it is not a purpose, it is not an objective for which God has given us these children. So I say to you, dear fellow parent, as I am one, if you find yourself getting involved in your kid's drama, it's a warning sign that you're too horizontally focused, and you need to adjust the vertical button on your receiver. Am I the only one old enough here to remember when there was a vertical and a horizontal (laughs) button? And too horizontally focused on your, on your television. You just have a button for that. You're too horizontally focused, focused on uh, peer relationships and others rather than vertically upon their relationship with God. The rule we should teach our children, hear this, is to compare and contrast themselves with Christ, not each other and not other kids. The self centered approach of Jacob resulted in a self-centered approach from Joseph. Now, I've been talking about baggage that we get in our environment, that is part of our nurture. This is baggage that is given to us. And then there's what we do with the baggage that's given to us, not to mention the additional baggage we create ourselves. And what we do with that baggage of our nurture, of our environment, how we respond to it, and what baggage we create on our own, both of those are dictated by the second thing that I have as a source of this baggage in your outline. Our baggage comes from, first, our nurture, but then secondly, I say in your outline, it comes from our nature. Our nature. You see, if there was not already a receptivity to this self-centeredness, it wouldn't have the effect that it had. But in fact, there is. Joseph and his brothers, and you and me, are ready-made to be stroked. And if somebody tells me how great I am, I'm very quick to believe it. I already thought so. I'm glad you discovered it. And the Bible teaches that's the way we all are in our sin, in our self-centeredness, in our self-focus. And nurture, then, will either reinforce the particular sinful tendencies, the tendencies that we have, or if those involved in that environment are wise, it will repress those things and help us to exchange them for Christ-like qualities. The philosopher Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I just want to modify that slightly and say the unexamined life is not worthy of Jesus. You see, friends, because we all got baggage. If I want to be like Jesus, then I want to know what it is. And then once I know what it is, I want to rid myself of it. I want to exchange it for Christ-like character qualities and Christ-like attributes. Or to put it positively, rather than the unexamined life is not worthy of Christ, the Christian life requires examination. It requires it regularly, and it requires it because everyone has baggage. We're going to move on to the second point in your outline. But let me just ask you, friends: Have you ever thought to yourself, "How did I have I become the person that I am?" And many of us have not. I know this from my own life. I know this from from talking to folks and ministering to folks. Many have never taken the time to do that. And part of the reason we haven't is because the assumption is, I'm good, you've got the problem. So there's no particular reason for me to spend a lot of time thinking about how I came to be the way I am. The way I am is good. You've got the problem. And what I'm telling you is that none of us, none of us are like Jesus yet. And because none of us are like Jesus yet, then it's not all good. And therefore, I need to ask myself, how did I get where I am? Why am I the way I am? Why do I have the struggles that I have? We examine that, and as you examine that, you will see that it is a combination of your nurture and your nature. But here's the good news, secondly in your outline. Everyone has baggage, but God transforms our baggage. And so you have a haughty, self-centered young man in Joseph who promotes himself because he does not believe. That is, he does not have faith. You all remember in your Bible, the same word for faith is the same word for belief. And so Joseph does not believe. That is, he does not have faith that God's timing and means of promotion are best. And so he takes it upon himself to promote himself. And he promotes himself in front, of his, in front of his brothers. And as is always the case, it makes matters it makes matters worse. God says, I will lift you up in my time. First Peter chapter five. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up, that he is the one who lifts you up, and he lifts you up in due time. So we have this young man who has this faithless approach. What changes him? Well, the same thing that changes us. I say in your outline, we, like he, are transformed by faith. That is, he came to believe what he formerly did not believe. Believing anew the promises of the gospel. Now hear this, of who I really am and whose I really am. And therefore, why other things are of lesser value. You see, the reason you don't have to be the coolest kid at school is because you know whose you are and you know who you are in Jesus. The reason you do not have to constantly evaluate yourself in terms of other people, whether at work, whether in your neighborhood, whether at church, is because you know who you are and you know whose you are and you are secure in that. Joseph came to see that. We will see next week. And we will see how Joseph came to see that. But the first step in this transformation is that we come to believe that which we, even as believers, have been disbelieving by our actions and attitudes. This is so true for for, uh, Joseph. And he's placed in Faith's Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11 in your New Testament. But the setting for what Hebrews chapter 11 says about Joseph is found in the very last last chapter. In fact, the very last few verses of the book of Genesis. Where it tells us that Joseph gave a prediction about the fact that God's people... Who were going to sojourn in in Egypt for 400 years would one day be brought back in mass to the Promised Land, and he makes that prediction. And the reason he makes that prediction, and the reason the Book of Genesis ends with that, is one to set up the story of Moses in the Book of Exodus, but also to show that this full transformation has happened in the life of Joseph. That this man who believed that he had to promote himself now has placed his full belief and faith and trust in God to carry out his plan. And so Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. I want my casket to be taken to the promised land when you, when you go. So we are transformed by God. Taking the baggage that we acquire, taking the baggage that we pick up along the way and create ourselves. One, by faith, but then secondly, in your outline, we are transformed by repentance. By faith and then by repentance. What is repentance? A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Literally, the word repent in your Bible means a change of mind, but it is not just just a mental note. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And so, if you would turn to that last chapter that I was speaking of, chapter 50. And notice the transformation that has happened with Joseph. Self assured, haughty, proud, rubbing it in, favored son. We're going to see next week all that transpired between chapter 37 and chapter 50 in God's providence about how he was sold into slavery and rose to prominence in in Potiphar's house and then in the eyes of Pharaoh himself in Egypt. We'll see that next week. But in between chapters 37 and 50, God has worked providentially in the life of this young man to humble him. And having humbled him, now instead of flaunting Himself in front of his brothers. His brothers who come to him now. And had left him for dead. Sold him into slavery. Are now asking him to have mercy. What would the old Joseph have done? Verse 18. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves they said. But Joseph said to them do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God Let me just stop. Do you see that humility has developed? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. How did he get from there to here? the providential, gracious intervention of God to take Joseph's baggage and transform it so that we see what we read in chapter 50. God intervened and humbled him. And so from the life of Joseph, we see what needs to change and what God does to change it. And so I ask you, friends, do you, do I, see the constant need for change in our lives? Taking the baggage that's been given to us and that we've made worse ourselves and more baggage that we've created and examining it in the light of God's standard. I'm afraid that too often we think the Christian life... Now hear this. (laughs) The Christian life is avoiding stuff rather than changing my stuff. Let me explain what I mean. Too many of us think that a good Christian life means avoiding other people and their stuff. Other people got problems, man. Other people got issues. People out there in the world, yikes, stay away from them. They got problems. And so I'll be a good Christian if I'll stay away, if I will avoid other people's stuff, other people's issues, other people's baggage. And I'm here to tell you that we have implicitly defined the Christian life too long that way. I'm not tainted by their stuff. But friends, too often we think the Christian life is simply avoiding other people's sin more than dealing with our own sin. Until we come to the point that we see that change only happens when I'm willing to look at my sin when I'm willing to believe the gospel promises anew, and I'm willing to then repent, change of mind that leads to a change of life, then and only then will I move forward in Christ-likeness, achieving the objective that God has for us in the Christian life. The Christian life is God taking the time necessary to make me and you like Jesus. I'll give you one anecdote, and then we're done. And all the nursery workers said, praise God. (laughs) This happened to me. This very thing happened in my life. As I was studying the life of Joseph and I saw this proud young man. And I saw this young man who God had blessed in ways different than his own kin, his brother's and the haughty attitude that he had developed and the pride that he had developed in himself. As I read that and I studied that, I began to see my name there. So quickly, here's what happened. Many of you know I grew up, I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. My dear mom, a faithful Christian lady. There are four boys in my family, but only one of those four boys knows Jesus. I don't know why that is, other than, but for the grace of God, so go I. So God in his grace smiled upon me. Not, of course, because of me, but because of his gracious choice. But you know it is so easy, is it not? To think that somehow we merited, somehow we deserved. So I grew up in church. And I grew up being very involved in God's church. God allowed me to teach at a young age. God allowed me and my younger brother to sing together in front of the congregation numerous times over the years. So I was put in positions, public positions, very, very early on. That can stroke the ego of a, a young person. And it did for me in ways I didn't realize. But thanks be to God, he was not going to leave me there and he intervened in my life not by moving me to egypt not by selling me into slavery but by causing me at the age of 22 to be without a church to attend it's a long story that i won't bore you with but having been all my life in church at the age of 22 i found myself searching for a church kimmy and i were engaged she'd been in church her whole life and she neither of us had a church 22, here we are engaged, been in church our whole life, and now we need a church. We didn't know where to go. We went to a mega church for one year. We were married at that mega church. We sat for a year, Sunday after Sunday, in the auditorium of a mega church. Now, I grew up in small churches, churches much smaller than ours. Kimmy was familiar with that same kind of environment. And here we were in this mega church, and I'm sitting in this auditorium of 4,500 people every Sunday. And no one knows me. And I don't do anything here. And not only that, they don't need me to do anything. As a matter of fact, if I walk out in the parking lot and somebody speeds out and hits me and I die, it'll all be good. Life will just go on at church. And I remember for that year sitting there and hating it. But why? Why? hating it because I was not in the limelight. And God knew that he had to deal with that in my heart in order for me to be used as his vessel in the future. God placed me there for that year for me to learn that lesson. I'm still learning it, but God helped me grow by leaps in that area of my life for that year. And he did that kind of thing in the life of proud, haughty Joseph. Joseph needs to be brought down a peg or two. And God knows how to do that. And we'll see how he did it. If you can come back and find a seat next week. Let's pray together. Father, again we thank you for this sacred time together, to consider these principles from your word as gleaned from the life of your servant, Joseph. Lord, we're talking about Joseph only because we're talking about you. Because Joseph only matters because you made him matter. And Lord, we only matter because of your grace in our lives. Lord, none of us is anything to ourselves. We are what we are because and only because of our relationship to you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help me this week to examine further how I have these vestiges of pride in my own heart, that I want the accolades that belong only to you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would help them this week to begin to examine the baggage in their lives as well. Help them to ask you, Lord. Help each of us to ask you, Lord, show me what I'm carrying with me, and what needs to change to make me like Jesus. Together, may this be a place that is filled with people who are becoming like their Lord, so that we can show your character and thereby shine your glory in this community and in your world. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.